Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 18. We'll begin reading in verse 10. As we turn there, let's pray together and pray for God's blessing on our time. Father, we come. Uh, we come just as we are. We, we come, uh, we come, Father, needy. Uh, we come sinful. We come hungry for your word, hungry for your grace. Father, we come very often ignorant of your truth, forgetting Jesus so quickly day to day. We come, Father, needing to hear again the gospel, needing to be refreshed and uh, encouraged again, hearing about your love in the cross. And we pray, Father, that we would hear of that this morning. We pray that you would teach us from your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 18, we'll begin reading verse 10, we'll read through verse 35. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
And his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, nobody likes conflict. I mean, arguments, petty annoyances, religious and political disagreements, relational tension in families, nobody likes conflict. Okay, there are a few people who really seem to thrive off of it, but for the most part, people don't like conflicts. When something happens that is likely to cause conflict, we we turn our head, we walk the other way, we we keep our mouth shut, we avoid eye contact, all in the hopes of steering clear of conflict. Well, conflict is not always bad, and conflict is inevitable. In the church or out of it, people are sinful. And we do lots of stupid, mean, selfish, and arrogant things. And when we do those kinds of things, and they go unaddressed, it can destroy a community. Whether that's a relationship, or a family, or a neighborhood, or a church, or a country, unaddressed sin is destructive. And Jesus says when sin happens in the church, our response should be threefold. We're going to look at uh, that under three headings. We're going to look at compassion, confrontation, and forgiveness. You can see that outline in your bulletin on the back. Now, I have to say before I start talking about these things that I am not good at handling conflict. You know, most conflict that you have is conflict with the people that are closest to you because you're around them so much. And when conflict arises in the Hershey home, uh, I fail at all three of these things. I lack compassion. I uh, confront with harshness rather than grace. And I am slow to forgive. I need Jesus' words here probably more than anyone in this room. And I need the gospel to change my heart and transform me into a a person that is compassionate and gracious, who confronts in love and is ready to forgive. Let's look at compassion. What do you do when you look across the pew And you see someone there that you know is living in sin. Maybe you say, well, you mind your business. Well, we say that, but what do we really do? Maybe they've even sinned against you. Maybe it's not across the pew. Maybe it's across the street in your neighborhood or across the office at work or across the classroom or even across the bedroom in your home. You know how we often respond. We look down on the person. I would never do such a thing. I can't believe he did that. Or we gossip about the person. Can you believe he did that? Or maybe we blow up at the person. How could you do that? Or even how could you do that to me? See, Jesus says our temptation is to despise. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, these little ones we talked about a few weeks ago, these little ones are people who recognize that they have no 
status before God. No righteousness with which to boast. The parable that Jesus tells next really confirms that Jesus is talking about people particularly in their sin because it's a parable about stray sheep. It's a parable about people who have wandered off the right path. And so Jesus is actually saying here right at the beginning, do not despise a brother or sister who falls into sin. Now that's difficult because we are so focused on status. We are so focused on on who's doing better than who. And as soon as we see someone living in sin, we kind of puff out our chests and think of how good we are because we're not as bad as this next guy. And of course, this is only increased if the brother or sister who has sinned has sinned against us because we're filled with a self-righteous indignation. I can't believe you treated me this way. I would never treat another human being like that. We despise them. Notice Jesus' story. He tells it in verses 12 and 13. He tells a story of a lost sheep and a story of a shepherd who goes out looking for that sheep. And when the shepherd finds the sheep, he rejoices. The application Jesus makes of this parable is in verse 14. He says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. To the father is the shepherd in the story who doesn't want to lose even one sheep. The father is the shepherd who rejoices when even one stray sheep is recovered. Now, when you see someone in sin, whether they sin against you or, or, or not, your heart should be, according to Jesus, for their recovery, their repentance, their return to the father. We're to be concerned for the state of those in sin because that is the Father's attitude toward us. As long as we condemn people when they fall into sin rather than have compassion on them, in fact, we're even participating in the destructive power of that sin. Because remember, sin that goes unaddressed is destructive, right? Destructive to, in particular, to a community. You may remember in the Bible, Israel rebelled against God all the time. And God would send judgment their way again and again to wake them up and try to shake them out of their sinful ways. But they persistently turned away from him. And in the book of Hosea, God is recounting Israel's rebellion. And at one point, he's in the middle of talking about their sin, and he bursts out, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those were cities that God had destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. See, God is moved with compassion. He loves His people, even though they have repeatedly rebelled against Him. He wants to restore them. God has a love for rebellious people. In Romans chapter 5, says that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Paul says elsewhere that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
God loves sinners and sent Jesus to die for sinners. Now, when you fall into sin, when you rebel against God, when you, when you give in to some temptation, you do something that you know is wrong, what do you think is God's attitude towards you in that moment? Maybe you think God is up there looking down, shaking his head, saying, there he goes again. I knew he couldn't hold out for long. I can't believe she fell into that sin again. If she sins in that way one more time, that's it. That's what we think. We think God is sort of up there going tisk tisk. But God's attitude toward those whom he has adopted in Jesus is this. How can I give you up, my child? How can I hand you over, oh, my son, my daughter? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God loves even his straying children. He has compassion on even the most backslidden believer. His love does not change. Well, when you see someone who has fallen into some sin, what is your first reaction? Do you despise them, look down on them, condemn them? Now, I, I ask parents especially, right, when, when you see your child fall into some sin, right? This is often where our discipline goes wrong even from the start. Because when a child sins, do you despise them or are you annoyed, right, that their behavior is an inconvenience to you? Or are you moved with compassion, mercy, grace? We are not to despise someone when we see them fall into sin. We must remember our own sin and remember God's compassion for us and we must sympathize with the sinner and show the same compassion to them that God has shown to us. You know, it's funny, I think... Most of the time, we can only conceive of two ways of handling sin. Either we come down hard and angry, despising and belittling, or you're kind of an enabler and you ignore sin and you just kind of let yourself and others be used and abused. And it's either one extreme or the other. But sympathy and compassion are not the same thing as ignoring sin. When the father has compassion on the sinner, he pursues him. The shepherd goes out and looks for the sheep. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean to pursue someone in their sin? And that's what Jesus tells us next. Our compassion is to lead to confrontation. Jesus says in verse 15 that if a brother sins, go and tell him his fault. This is what compassion for a sinful brother or sister looks like. It's not condemning and despising them. And it's not ignoring or excusing their sin, but it's confronting them in their sin. This is the hardest thing in the world to do. It's, it's so easy to stuff your emotions for a time, or it's easy to gossip, or it's easy to explode in anger, but it's so hard to confront someone in love. Paul says in Galatians, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is what searching for stray sheep looks like. 
And we have so many reasons for not confronting someone. I mean, we're afraid of how they will respond. We're afraid of, our, of being misunderstood. We're afraid of our own anger. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, there are times, of course, when it's okay to overlook something, right? When some small, personal, private offense. I mean, there, there are plenty of offenses that are not sin against God, but are bothersome to us, right? Someone does something that annoys you or that grates on you, that bothers you. Can you overlook it? Great, do so. But if not, or if it is a large or a public sin, then what? Jesus says, go and confront them. Go and talk to this person about it. And yet Jesus gives not only the action, but also the attitude. If he listens to you, he says, you have gained your brother. Your goal is not to put him in his place. It's not to prove that he's wrong and you're right. Your goal is to gain your brother, to have your relationship, which has been broken by sin, restored and put back together and made whole once again. Now, if that doesn't work, Jesus says, you take one or two others with you. These aren't necessarily other people who have been offended so that you can all gang up on this person, right? But, but people who can witness the interchange, preferably people your brother or sister respects and looks up to and will generally listen to. And if your brother or sister still refuses to listen to them, Jesus says you take it to the church. That's interesting. There's an assumption here uh, that the two of you are both members of a church, that there is some common gathering of brothers and sisters, some group of people that you two belong to that you can appeal to. First and foremost, of course, that means uh, going to the elders, the leaders in any given congregation. At that point, the, a, a more formal process of coming before the body begins. But Jesus says, if your brother continues to refuse to listen continues to refuse to turn from his sin, Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, the, the goal of confrontation is, is reconciliation, right? It's restoration of this relationship. But what if someone just refuses to listen? Jesus says, and we're talking about dealing with sin, right? Not petty personal offenses, but dealing with sin. Jesus says, you remove him from the church. Now, that is really extremely offensive to some people. I mean, removing someone from the church? I mean, I thought anyone could be a part of the church. I mean, we, we talked about last time we looked at the beginning of Matthew 18, that, that the fact that the church is for statusless people who have no righteousness with which to boast before God. How can you put someone out of the church for being a sinner? I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. Well, actually, you never put someone out of the church for being a sinner. You never put someone out of the church for sinning. You put someone out of the church for their hardness of heart and refusing to repent, for refusing to acknowledge their sin. See, Jesus' kingdom is for those who have no righteousness of their own and who recognize their poverty, absolutely. And at any point in the process, this person can say, I, I was wrong. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And the person would be restored. See, no one is ever put out of the church for sinning. According to Jesus, people are, 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 not, are, are to be put out of the church for refusing to acknowledge and give up their sin. There's a difference. The goal, of course, of that is to wake them up 
and to bring them back. Now, there is so much that could be said about this process. It must be done in gentleness, as Galatians 6 says. It, it should be include as few people as are necessary. That's the point of sort of Jesus' outline. It should be done slowly. Uh, God is patient with us. And we need spirit-given wisdom to be patient with others in pursuing their repentance and reconciliation. In, in one sense, if you look about, at the Bible, the Bible is one giant book of God's confronting us with our sin, right? I mean, beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden, God has been patiently confronting us, calling us to repentance and restoration. I mean, God confronts Adam and Eve. God confronts Cain twice. Uh, God confronts Pharaoh, who hardens his heart. God confronts Israel repeatedly in the wilderness and in the promised land again and again. God confronts David after his adultery with Bathsheba. Confronting sin is God's method of restoring people to a relationship with himself. And think about it, how else could it be? I mean, if you are married and your spouse is consistently controlling and selfish, maybe they never take you into account, or, or they're only concerned about their own needs and their own schedule, their own hobbies, their own desires. Well, what, what can you do? What options do you have? Well, you could just ignore it, just let it go. The likely result is you will get bitter and they will only grow more selfish. You will grow more and more distant from one another. You could blow up at them, right? Which is, again, likely to create more emotional distance, possibly causing them to draw away further. Or you could lovingly confront them in an effort to restore the relationship. You, you want to draw near, you want to draw closer, but this can only happen if the sin is lovingly dealt with. Now, even here, there are lots of qualifications that we could make um, one that must be made is this, is that if, if confronting someone might make them physically violent, obviously you should never do it alone um, or, in a, or in a private place. You consult a trusted person, a parent, an elder, a professor. You figure out together the best way to approach this person. But the general principle is the same, right? You lovingly confront someone who sinned against you with the goal of restoring the relationship. This is the way God pursues us in Jesus. This is the way God calls us to pursue one another, to have compassion on someone, leading to confrontation, hopefully leading to forgiveness, which is the third point. In the final story in this chapter, uh, Peter comes to Jesus, and he's apparently been processing these things a little bit, and he asks Jesus a question. He says, how often am I to forgive my brother? As many as seven times? Now, Peter thinks he's being pretty generous. Uh, apparently, the rabbis said you only had to forgive someone three times, right? So seven times in, in that light is pretty extravagant. That's more than double. Jesus responds to him in verse 22. Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Well, depending on your Bible, it either says 77 times or 70 times 7 times. And that's because the Greek could be taken either way. In fact, depending on your ESV, it will be different. I had two ESVs in front of me, this, you know, the same, apparently the same translation, right? And it said something different in both. And in one, it footnoted the other, and in one, it didn't. So you never know. But 
Could be 77 or could be 70 times 7, but either way, Jesus is not saying on the 78th time or on the 491st time, you can stop forgiving. That's not his point. He's not trying to give you the right number of times to forgive. I'm actually inclined to believe that, that Jesus meant 70 times 7 times. In which case, Jesus is echoing the year of Jubilee. In every seven years, there was a Sabbath year in Israel, a year of rest. But after seven times seven years, after the 49th year, was the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee, all debts were forgiven. Whatever you owed someone, it was simply wiped out in the year of Jubilee. And in this case, by saying not even just seven times seven, but 70 times seven, Jesus is saying to Peter, total forgiveness, right? It's like the year of Jubilee. It's like the release of all debts. That's the way you should respond to your brother when he asks you to forgive him every time. Now, again, there are lots of ways you might qualify this, right? Jesus is not saying you go back to an abusive relationship. That's the most important qualification you have to make, um, you never know what people are going through when they start hearing about forgiveness, and it's important to say that. But we don't want to qualify forgiveness out of existence, nor do we want to use those qualifications to withhold forgiveness. I can genuinely forgive someone, I can love someone and want to be restored to them, but not enter back into the relationship until they show a desire to change. As long as that holding back is, is motivated by an ultimate desire to be restored and not a desire to get back at them by emotionally withdrawing, then it is actually a piece of the reconciliation process as a whole. And so Jesus says, total forgiveness, Peter. Don't seek the comfortable path. Don't seek revenge. Trust God, pursue reconciliation, and forgive, no matter how often it is necessary. Now, Jesus tells a story to emphasize his point here. He tells a story about a king, a lord. This king calls his servants to give an account. And one servant comes in and owes the, the, the king 10,000 talents. Now, I'm not very good at math, but by my, my calculations, that's over $3 billion. It's a lot of money. The point is, it's, it's a debt that could never be repaid, right? $3 billion. The master is going to sell him and his family and everything he owns to pay back some small piece of that debt. And this servant begs, unrealistically, uh, notice what he asks for. The servant falls on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Right? So the servant says, just give me time and I'll pay all $3 billion back. The master graciously forgives the whole debt. The servant goes out. He finds someone who owes him money, 100 denarii, which is 100 days wages, which based off minimum wage, I think, would be $5,800, okay? Which, again, is no small sum of money. It's not $3 billion, but if someone owes you six grand, I mean, that's pretty significant. And servant number one begins to choke servant number two, demanding that he pay the debt, and servant number two says almost the exact same words the first servant had said to the king, have patience with me and I will pay you, which in that case, it's actually realistic. He probably could. And yet the servant refuses. He puts him in prison until he should repay the debt. Well, word of this gets back to the king. And this is how the story ends, starting in verse 32. 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's a really hard ending. And there is so much that I'd like to say about forgiveness from this parable, but I'll just point out a few things that we should notice. The first is that forgiveness is for the sake of the forgiven. This is important to point out because it's popular today to talk about the benefits of forgiving. In fact, someone even called it the gift that you give yourself. And it can be beneficial, right? I mean, you you release yourself from bitterness and anger, uh, both of which have long-term negative consequences on someone's body and soul. But the king in this parable does not benefit from releasing the servant from the debt. Forgiveness is for the sake of the forgiven, God does not forgive us to free himself from bitterness and anger. I guarantee it. God forgives us for our good so that we don't have to face his wrath, his justice, and our deserved punishment. Forgiveness is for the sake of the forgiven. This is why the next point is so significant, and we need to notice that forgiveness is a transaction. Again, it's popular today to talk about forgiveness as you forgiving someone in your heart. Well, I've forgiven him in my heart. Jesus, at the end of the parable, talks about forgiving someone from your heart, but that's a little bit different. Forgiveness is a transaction. It's it's when I release you of your debt. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't internal aspects to it. Of course, there are. I determine internally to no longer hold you accountable to release you from this debt Someone has called that attitudinal forgiveness as opposed to transactional forgiveness, one part of it. But that internal, personal decision should, whenever possible, lead to an interpersonal transaction, right? Where I forgive you, where I release you from your debt and you receive that forgiveness. Because forgiveness is for the sake of the forgiven. This leads to something else about forgiveness that we need to notice from the story, and that is that true forgiveness is always costly, The master forgave his servant $3 billion of debt. Now just think about what that means. The result is the master loses $3 billion. Forgiveness of that debt was costly for the master. Even the servant goes out, he finds someone who owes him $5,800. That's a, a big chunk of change, right? To forgive that debt would be costly. Now... Financial debt is not the same thing as sinful offense, right? And forgiving a financial debt, okay, that's costly, I get that. But how is forgiving a sin costly? I mean, you know what we say most of the time when somebody says, I'm sorry? We say, oh, it's no problem. Right? By implication, we're saying it's, it's not costly to forgive someone. But it is. How so? Well, this may take a minute, but uh, it's worth it. It's worth thinking about. When someone hurts you, uh, you feel pain, and you want to make them pay. That's, That's what we say, right? I'll make them pay for what they did to me. There is this sense of justice inside of you. You've been wronged, and and now there's this emotional debt of pain. That's what Tim Keller calls it, an emotional debt of pain. And you want the other person to pay. 
And we make them pay by making them feel an equal or often a greater amount of pain, right? We, we, there are lots of different ways that we do this. We ignore them or we become emotionally cold or we speak passively aggressively, passive aggressively. We gossip, we yell at them, we physically harm them, right? There's a debt that they've created by hurting us and we want them to pay. How do you forgive that kind of a debt? Well, in the end, you have to accept the pain yourself. You, you, you eat it rather than making them pay for it. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, again, Keller explains it this way. He says, every time you want to rehash the past with a person, but you don't, it hurts. Every time you want to rub their nose in it, but you don't, it hurts. Every time you want to be cold to them, but instead you try to be warm to them, it hurts. Every time you have a chance to run them down to, to somebody else and you don't, it hurts. Every time you see them prospering and you refuse to stick little pins in them in your imagination and you don't, it hurts. What are you doing? Why does it hurt so much, he says. It's costly not to take revenge. You are making the payments. You are paying their debt. You could put this a different way, right? When someone hurts us, there's this emotional pain that we have, and we think that by hurting them back, that emotional pain will be released, right? We think, if I can only get back at them, then I'll be at peace. We think that our pain will go away if we can just hurt this other person. Well, to forgive them, then, is to accept that pain rather than trying to release it through revenge, to forgive another person is to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel this pain rather than trying to release it through revenge. And I'm going to trust that God is big enough to care for me in the midst of it. Forgiveness is always costly. We see this preeminently in the gospel, don't we? I mean, when God comes to forgive us, there is a debt. We have sinned against him. We have broken his law. We have rebelled against our king. There is a moral debt that must be paid when God comes to forgive us, he doesn't just wave his hand and say, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. He sends his son to pay the debt. The debt must be paid. All debts must be paid by someone. When God decided to forgive, in that same moment, he decided to suffer. A decision to forgive is a decision to take the debt yourself. It's a decision to suffer. The gospel is that God has taken the moral debt that sinners owe him and laid it on his son, Jesus, on the cross so that whoever confesses their sin and turns to Jesus as their debt bearer, they are forgiven. Total forgiveness. Now, there's one more thing that we need to see from this story, and that is that forgiveness comes from a forgiven heart. This story is really about someone who was forgiven but doesn't forgive. Forgiveness must penetrate our hearts if we are to become forgiving people. And notice a couple of thing, things. The, the first servant, he never asks for forgiveness. He asks for time to pay back his debt. What does that imply? Well, it implies, on the one hand, that he has no sense of the immensity of his debt. And two... Uh, he has no sense of his inability to pay it back. It, it also means that his mentality is essentially a works-based mentality. Just give me more time and I'll pay you back. Right? God, I can outweigh my sins by my good deeds. Just give me a little bit of time and I'll do enough good and, and then you'll be happy with me. 
When the master, graciously, without even being asked, forgives the debt, and the servant goes out, finds someone who owes him money, and, and, and remember, this is a real debt, just as we are really sinned against. It's a lot smaller than $3 billion, but it's not 25 cents either, right? It's a, a real debt, and the servant refuses to forgive. Why does he do that? Well, think about the logic that the king uses at the end of the parable when he rebukes the servant. The, the king says, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Mercy received, right, should dictate mercy given. That's what he's saying. But Jesus says that we are to forgive one another from our hearts. So what was this servant's problem? The mercy had never penetrated his heart. He, he, he did not see the immensity of his debt. He was looking at life through a works-based lens. And the forgiveness offered by this king didn't change any of that. It didn't penetrate his heart. And so he treated others in a way consistent with his works-based view of the world. I think I can, if I think I can work myself out of a $3 billion debt, right, I'm going to expect you to work yourself out of a $3,500 debt or whatever, 80, whatever it was, right? If I think I can do it, then I'm certainly going to expect you to do it as well. What we see in this parable is what it looks like when forgiveness doesn't penetrate our hearts. When we grasp hold of God's forgiveness in Christ, we, we forgive. That's what the Bible consistently says. Anyone who has been forgiven should forgive in response. Forgiving is a fruit of being forgiven. Unforgiveness, which by the way is not a word, but it sounds good. Unforgiveness is evidence of our having not received forgiveness. Forgiving others is evidence of having been forgiven. Does that mean then that, that, okay, I've been forgiven in Jesus, I know that, I get the immensity of my sin, I get the cost of my forgiveness in the cross, does that mean that I'm going to forgive right away every time, right? I should just be able to, boom, forgive and, and, and be done with it. Well, no, for a number of reasons. For one, forgiveness is not easy, even when you know you've been forgiven, and forgiveness takes time very often. It's a process. It doesn't just happen once. We need to forgive people who have sinned against us in large ways every day. We have to come at that afresh and forgive. Does that mean then that, in light of the end of the parable, that we're not forgiven until we forgive? Is that what that means? Meaning if forgiveness is hard and it takes time, does that mean we're not forgiven until we forgive? Well, no. Think about the logic of that. What that would mean is that in Jesus we are forgiven of everything except for our unforgiveness. But Christ's death covers all our sins, even our lack of forgiveness. Well, why take this text all at once? I mean, these are a lot of verses, three stories that could have been dealt with each on their own. And I could have said a lot more had I taken them one by one. Trust me, I could have said a lot more. <laughs> But together, these form a picture of how reconciliation happens, right? When out of compassion, we confront others in love and forgive them when they ask for it. Where does this need to happen in your life? Where has someone sinned against you? You need to have compassion. Confront them in love and forgive when asked. 
And if you're not there yet, right, if your heart is still angry at them and still withholding forgiveness and still unwilling to be compassionate, still despising them for what they did, seek God, right? Seek his spirit. Ask Jesus to melt your heart. Ask Jesus to show you the immensity of your own sin. To see that it's so much bigger than whatever this person did to you is so much, it's, it's you know, $5,800 as compared to $3 billion. It's so much smaller. That doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean they didn't hurt you. But, but if you get that you have been forgiven such an immense debt, you will much more readily forgive them their sin against you and then be able to move toward them in compassion, in confrontation, and then ultimately to forgive them and offer that forgiveness. Well, also, this method of reconciliation is a reflection, of course, of God's work in reconciling us to himself, right? There's no better picture that God, out of his great compassion for sinful people, pursues us. He sends Jesus to pay the debt that we owe. And then he confronts us with our sin and his offer of forgiveness in the gospel. And when we come to him and ask for forgiveness in Jesus, he gives it. Whether we fall into the same sin seven times in a day or 77 times in a day or 490 times in a day, God is ready to forgive us when we turn to him in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we come to you now. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now through Jesus asking for you to forgive us for our sins, asking for you to cleanse us from all unrighteousness asking you to forgive us for despising others, for looking down on them, for thinking that we're something better, and asking for you to renew our hearts so that we would be able to have compassion even on our enemies, even those who have sinned against us, that we would be able to have compassion on the person next to us, that we would pursue others in love, and that we would forgive as you have forgiven us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.